0: Philippians, the first chapter, that's towards the back of your Bible, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and the first chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack, I'd encourage you to use that. Philippians, the first chapter. We're going to look at verses 18 through 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 30. The Bible says, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and to supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you, with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. And let's pray. Father, again, we are so very thankful for opportunity to come and be in this place today. And Lord, I'm certainly thankful for those that you brought to the church house. We rejoice and praise you that there's people who care about you and who want to care about spiritual things, who want to come to the church house to hear the preaching of the word. And I pray as the word is preached this morning that folks would take it to heart, that they would open their their heart to the Holy Spirit and allow him to do that which he wants to do in their heart and life. We pray for any that would be here who have never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior. They have no assurance of heaven when they die. I do pray that in the invitation they'll come and allow us the privilege of showing them how to come to Christ and know him as their Lord and Savior. And I pray for the believers here. Help us to be challenged, new and fresh, encouraged, strengthened, and when needed, rebuked and reproved by the preaching of your word. And might we, might we be tender in your, in, your, in, your, in your hands. And might we be clay, moldable, and shapeable by you. Have your way in our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this, Good Advice for Godly Living. Good Advice for Godly Living. I want to call your attention to verses 20 and 21 in the text that we've read. Paul writes here, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, that with all boldness as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have before us this morning this portion of the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the church at Philippi. At the time of his writing, uh, the writing of this epistle, Paul is a prisoner of the emperor Nero, Nero over in Rome. The church at Philippi was one dear to the heart of the apostle Paul. It was established as a result of his brief visit there, uh, during his, uh, uh, he and Silas, in one of his missionary journeys, and uh, Paul had to come to Phil come to Philippi, and we learned that while he was there, he and Silas were able to see some people get saved. Uh, <clears throat> we think of Lydia who got saved, then we think of the Philippian jailer, and his family got saved while he was there. But we also read that Paul and Silas were imprisoned overnight, and that the next day they carried on their ministry. So he didn't stay very long in Philippi. Later we learn that that church at Philippi became a great blessing to Paul as it sent financial offerings to him on a couple of occasions to help him and support him. Now Paul is writing to these believers a letter of instruction and a letter of encouragement. While several of Paul's epistles are letters of rebuke, there's no such need for the Philippians. He He doesn't really have to rebuke them for much of anything. In the text we've read, we find Paul offering some very powerful and and pointed instruction to the Philippians, uh, using himself as an example. In verse 12, he reveals that he basically lived for one thing. He had one goal, one driving force to his life, and that was for the furtherance of the gospel. Look over there at verse 12, if you will. He says, but I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. In verse 13, he reveals the desire of his life, is that his life, his testimony would be in a, an, an effect, would have an effect or be an influence on those who were around him. Look at verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palaces, in all the places. Paul's desire who's to be used of the Lord to influence those who are around him. And I believe that ought to be the desire of every believer, that our lives, the lives we live, would affect and influence those around us for the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to share with you Paul's example as in, and how he's offered it as advice. Here in these verses, Paul gives some good advice to believers on how to live godly lives Lies that will influence others for Christ. Good advice for godly Christians or godly living. The first thing we need to see is Paul's determination. And that's in verse 20. It says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness as always so. Now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. So we see Paul's determination here. Paul purposed to live a proper life. He said he wanted to live above reproach. He wanted to live what he professed. He wanted to live a life where he wouldn't have to be ashamed. He wanted to live a life that wasn't hypocritical. He wanted to live a life where he lived what he professed to believe. Paul wanted to live a clean life. He wanted to do his best to stay clean for the Lord. You know, that's a battle in itself. Just living to stay clean, clean spiritually. I'm talking about sin in our lives. And Paul wanted to wanted to live for the Lord. Uh, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he talks about he don't want to be a castaway. And when he says a castaway, he's talking about he don't want to be one of no value. And uh He wanted to be used by the Lord Jesus Christ, and that should be the prayer of every believer. So Paul purposed to live a proper life so that he didn't have to be ashamed uh, before other people, and and he wouldn't be unusable for the Lord. And then he purposed to live so as not to have regrets. (coughs) Excuse me. Paul regretted his actions prior to salvation. A couple of places he mentions the fact of what he was before he got saved. He was a persecutor of Christians. And now he regretted that, but he could not change it. Uh, he, he persecuted churches. He persecuted Christians. Now, Paul purpose now that he's saved, he wants to live so as not to regret his actions as a believer. Over in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he gives his testimony about uh, he's about to pass on. He's about to be martyred. And he says that I've fought a good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished my course. So Paul wanted to live and he purposed to live so he wouldn't regret when his end came how he had lived for the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ. And then Paul purposed to live with the judgment seat of Christ in view. Uh, you know, he, he said that he, would give an, he understood that he would give an account for how he lived after he became a Christian. And uh, he, he understood that he did not want to be ashamed on that day when he had to stand before the Lord and give an account. And can I remind you, we're going to all give an account of our lives. Listen, we need to have proper lives. We need to live above reproach. We need to live in a way that we're not hypocrites. Hmm. I know oftentimes I've heard it, you've heard it, there are too many hypocrites in the church. Well, that's that's probably the truth, but we should try and strive not to be hypocritical in in the church, in in our salvation, not just in the church house, in everything we say and do. We ought to be the same in church as we are outside of church. I'll say that again. We ought to be the same in church as we are outside the church. For instance, we ought not to use any language outside the church we wouldn't use in the church. Hmm? It amazes me there's a lot of Christians who wouldn't utter a curse word in the church house, but, boy, get them outside. Mm, That ought not to be the kind of Christians we are. We ought to be living uh, outwardly in front of uh, unsaved people, lives that are consistent with what we say we believe. Uh, We need to understand we need to live proper lives by not being hypocritical, usable by the Lord, consistent, consistent. we should understand that we need to live not in a in a way that we would not have regrets. Now, if you got saved a little later in life and, and you, you, you lived some of your life in the flesh and uh, you remember things that you did that you wish you hadn't, you have regrets. But listen, as Christians, we get a clean slate. When we come to Christ, we get saved. Now we can live lives without regrets. And, and so we need to live lives that are going to be pleasing to the Lord and not doing things that we're going to have to be ashamed of. Do you realize the Lord is with you all the time if you're saved? When you got saved, according to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit took up residence in you. And no matter where you go or what you do, he is with you. So God knows everything you do, everywhere you go, everything you say. He's a witness to your life. And we ought to we ought to we ought to want to live lives that we're witnessing to Him, that we're truly His, and trying to walk in the Spirit. We need to live lives so as not to regret our actions, and then we need to live lives with the judgment seat of Christ in view. And we've said how Paul realized one day he was going to stand before the Lord, and so will we. There's three different places. There's 1 Corinthians um, chapter 3. There's Romans chapter 12. There's 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 where we're told all those three places that we're going to give an account of our lives uh, to the Lord. If you're saved, there's coming a day when you'll stand before Jesus and give an account of how you live for him and how you live for the Lord after you got saved. Now, you're not going to be called into account for any of your sin. Our sin is all under the blood. But we are accountable for our lives. And God expects us to live for him. And one day we'll have to give answer to him. And the uh, judgment seat of Christ is in view. And we ought to live with that in, a, in our minds. that be, Before we do things, before we go places, before we say things, we ought to remember one day I'm going to have to give an account for how I live for the Lord. And I don't want to have to be ashamed. We sang face-to-face with Christ my Savior. Think about what it's going to be like when we do stand with him. Now, initially, it's going to be wonderful. We're going to be in his presence. But then when we have to stand and give account, it's not going to be so pleasant. Hmm? So understand, you're going to be called uh, into account. So Paul had a determination. He just determined, I'm going to live in such a way that I don't have to be ashamed of how I'm living here in front of other people or when I stand before the Lord his determination. We ought to have that kind of determination. Then number two, look at Paul's desire. And we read these two verses. I'll just read verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says in verse 20, the latter part, he lives so Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. And then he follows that for to me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul's goal in life was to make much of Jesus. John Phillips wrote this concerning that idea of Paul wanting to make much of Jesus. Paul's goal was a noble, daring ambition. By life or death, Paul wanted to reflect the Lord Jesus so that a thoughtless world would be forced to observe him. All Paul cared about was magnifying Christ, and he wanted to be an instrument in God's hands for that purpose. We ought to have that kind of desire, that we would magnify Christ before the unsaved. Paul desired to live in such a way that others would see Christ in him and through him. Paul was determined that he was going to live the way Jesus lived. Well, how is that? A clean life, a loving life, and a compassionate life. That's what we find in Jesus when we see him walking this earth. There was no sin in him. He never one time did a sin. And he was compassionate. The Bible speaks several times about when he saw the, the crowds, the multitude. He looked on them with compassion, and he was loving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus loved us so much, he went to that cross of Calvary for us. So Paul desired that he would live a life that others would see Christ in him and through him by living the way Jesus lived, by doing what Jesus did. What was the, the sole uh, uh, center, if you will, uh, function of Jesus when he was on this earth? Well, he was preaching salvation. He was preaching uh, the, the need for men to come to Christ and to know Christ. He, he wanted people to be saved and not die and go to hell. And that's what we ought to be about. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing, uh, Paul was going to live with eternity in view, and we've talked about that. But a little different take on that, he was he was not living for this present world. I think there's too many Christians living for this present world. Now you know God is not against us having things. He's not against us having money. He's not against us being successful. That's God's not against any of that but he is against us uh, making those the priorities of our life and, and making him second fiddle. The Bible says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What are the priorities of your life? What comes first in your life? You or the Lord? Hmm, yeah. We need to live so that we, like Paul, can magnify Christ by living a life like he had. We need to have love and compassion for people. When you see the multitudes, does it ever burden you that they're not saved? When you go, when you go to the mall and you see people walking by you, does, it, does a thought ever occur to you that I wonder if these people know Christ? wonder where they're going when they die. Listen, Jesus had love and compassion on people. He cared about people. We need to learn to care about people. You know, don't raise your hand, but I'll just throw this question out. Please don't raise your hand, but how many of us are glad we're going to heaven? Well, listen, we didn't do anything to get that. All we did was receive it. And there's a world out there that, just like we were before we came to Christ, they're going to die and go to hell. And we ought to have a burden. We ought to have compassion on lost people like Paul did. His desire was that he would be used to bring people to Christ. He, he would do uh, live the life that emulates Christ's life, and then he would do what Jesus would have us to do. And what would Jesus have us to do? Spread the word of God. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But ye shall receive power after that. The Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what Jesus wants us to do. You know, there's an unsaved world out there, and they're not going to get saved unless somebody tells them about Christ. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Paul knew that, and Paul dedicated the remainder of his life to going out into the world to the unsaved people and preaching Jesus Christ to them that they might come to know him as their Savior. Paul was, that was his desire. That was what burned in his heart to see people coming to Christ. Do you have any burden for people? Have you ever prayed and said, Lord, I want a greater burden for lost people? You say, well, I haven't prayed that prayer. You're probably afraid to. Hmm? He might give you that burden, and you'll begin to be a real witness and testimony for the Lord like you ought to be. Hmm? Paul had that desire, and and that's what drove him, the desire to see people come to Christ and know what Paul knew. Uh, You should feel privileged, if you're saved, to know what you know. What do you mean? You know a different life from the unsaved. Hmm? Oh, how's that? Well, you live a life where you don't have to worry about where you're going when you die. If you're saved. You know, I got saved in 1974, and since then, I've never had to worry about where I'm going when I die. I settled the issue. I got born into God's family. The world out there don't know that. Matter of fact, they fear death. They try everything they can do to eliminate death and to stay away from death. They're fighting a losing battle. Hmm? Death is going to come upon all men, according to the Bible. Well, Paul wanted to live so that people would would see Christ in him and that he would be doing what Jesus wanted him to do and by yielding totally to the will of God. When Jesus was on this earth... uh, He said several times, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus was all about doing the will of the Father. That was his first priority, doing whatever God wanted to do, even when it was uncomfortable, even when it wasn't popular, even when it would cost him. Listen, he did God's will, and it cost him his life. We need to be willing to do God's will. You say, well, I don't know God's will. Well, read your Bible. You'll find it. Hmm? This is God's will, this book. People often get confused. You know, they say, I just don't know God's will. And I can tell you God's will. God's will is to live by this book. If you're living by this book, you're living in the will of God. If you're not living by this book, you're not living in the will of God. (coughs) That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's not deep theologically. I think everybody here can understand that. And I don't know about you. I don't answer for you. But I know this. I want to live in the will of God. I want his will to be my will. My will to be his will. Hmm? I pray oftentimes, Lord, help me to stay in your will. Hmm. See, every one of us has to make a decision every day. Whose will am I going to live in? Am I going to live for Jesus today or am I going to live for me today? Hmm. You, you face that every day? How am I going to live? Am I going to live in the spirit or am I going to live in the flesh? Paul had just made up his mind and his desire was that he would live in such a way that he would be totally yielded to the will of God. Go over to Galatians a couple pages back. Look at chapter 2 and verse 20 what Paul writes. What an example he was. Galatians 2 in verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, Paul's saying there, he died to himself. Paul quit living for Paul, and he started living for the Lord. And that's what we're supposed to do after we get saved. Now, it's a battle because our flesh wants us to satisfy it, to live for it. So every day, we just got to make that decision and live that decision. I am going to live for the Lord. And then we need to live with eternity in view and understand there's more to life than this world. There's a life after this life. It's real easy to get caught up in the things of this world. We need to be on guard that we don't allow ourselves to do that and keep our eyes where they where they need to be focused on eternity. Listen, you'll spend, I don't know, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years here or so, uh, but but we're going to spend all eternity in our next life. And we're going to spend it either in heaven or in hell. There's only two places. If you're thinking there's a purgatory, you've been misled. There is, Jesus never said one word about purgatory. He preached about heaven, he preached about hell, and he preached that he is the only way to heaven. And so we need to understand that. So we see Paul's determination, we see his desire, but I want you to notice his dilemma. He's got a dilemma. In verses 22 through 26, he talks about, it. he says, For I am in a strait. Betwixt two. What's he talking about there? Uh, when he says he's in the strait, he's torn. He, he, he's got people on both sides, something on both sides, pulling at him to go in one direction or the other. And he's caught between two possibilities. He says there, for I am in the strait, betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But then he goes on, he says, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And he says, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you, uh, with you all for your furtherance of the joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm, I'm really torn. I would just as soon die and go to heaven. I'm ready to go. He said, "But I don't believe it's God's will. I believe God wants me to come and be a blessing to you once again, and that's the better for you. Think about it. I'm in the strait betwixt these two, caught between two possibilities." Paul really he says he has a desire to depart and to be with Christ. You know, I thought that word "depart" had a real interesting connotation to it. I looked it up. And that word depart has the idea or the meaning of soldiers, uh, you know, a military type term. And it meant to take down your tent and move on. Well, I thought about that and I thought, oh, my soul, what a picture. Paul says he's, he's, he has a mind he'd like to depart. He'd like to take down his tent and move on. This is the tent. Listen, a tent is a temporary dwelling place, Mm -hmm. and the real me dwells in this temporary dwelling place, and one day, this dwelling place is going to die, and I'm going to go on to heaven. Amen. So when Paul says he has a desire to depart, he's talking about, I have a desire to lay this whole body down in the grave and go on to be with Jesus, and uh, that's that's not such a bad desire, is it? Paul is not in love with this world. When he says what he says, he's showing us he's anxious to leave. Paul is ready to leave this life behind. He's ready to be delivered from all the negatives of this life. How many of you would agree with me there's a lot of negatives in this life? Yeah. And God led us here to go through them. We'll talk a little more about that. There's a lot of negatives, and God has led us here to go through them. We need to understand, Paul is saying that, hey, I'm ready to leave all this behind and go to a better place. He's anxious to be delivered from these negatives. You know, I couldn't help but think about Mrs. Fidena For, I don't know, a few years now, when we get around to Fidena's, Mrs. Fidena was always of the mind. And Pastor would testify to this that she was ready to go home to be with Jesus. And he wrote in his uh, letter there uh, not, not too long ago, just a couple weeks ago, about towards the end there, Mrs. Fidena would go to bed at night and pray, Lord, let me come home before the morning. She's ready to go. And as Christians, we ought to be living in such a way, we're ready to go. Mrs. Fidena wasn't hanging on to the things of this world. She wasn't hanging on to her house and her car and and this and that, the next thing, he's saying, I don't want to leave these. No, she's ready to go. We ought to live in that kind of a way. Do you realize you, your time could be in the next 30 seconds, in the next one second? We're not guaranteed another breath, and we need to live in such a way we're ready to go. We shouldn't be in love with this world. And Paul wasn't. He recognized the Philippians had a need for him to stay. He recognized, I would rather be in heaven. It's going to be a much better place than I am now. And listen, if you don't know, I don't have time to read about it, but Paul went through all kinds of suffering in his life. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten uh, several times, uh, just shy of death, uh, 40 lashes, and, and on and on we could go about all the suffering Paul had to do. He's ready to go, but he says, I'm going to stay because that's God's will. And it's better for you, Philippians, that I stay and help you. He's just sold out to the will of God. Believers ought to yearn for heaven, not in love with this world, ready to go, anxious to be freed from all the negatives of this world. Many of you, raise your hand. You know the negatives of this world. Let me share something with you. I know you won't believe it, but I'm 71 years old. You know what I'm finding out? My body's 71 years old. I went to the doctor the other day for a problem, and and he said, you know, you need to do this and this. And one of the things he told me, uh, by the way, you need to pray for me. He told me to quit drinking so much coffee. He might as well just told me to lay down and die. But he did, he told me that. And uh, by, by the way, this is coffee day, isn't it? I thought I heard that, uh, but, but but that was a negative of my life that I'm having a problem with that, uh, you know, I would rather not have the problem, but those are the kinds of things I'm finding out this body wears out, so I said to the doctor, he said, you need to quit drinking so much coffee. I said, doc, I've been drinking that much coffee since I was a kid, and I never had a problem. He gave me one of those doctor answers, smart Alec. He said, well, you never had a 70-year-old body either. <laughs> Couldn't argue with that. Amen. But we know as we get older, these bodies wear out, and things quit working and don't work like they're supposed to. And, and you know, we get the eyeglasses and the dentures and and the replaced knees and hips and body parts. And, and as we get older, but we understand that's a part of it. There's a lot of negatives to this world. Go to Revelation chapter 21. In chapter 21 of Revelation, I want you to look at verses 3 and 4. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Listen, heaven is a wonderful, heaven is a wonderful place. And we ought to look forward to going there. Don't get too in love with this world. Be ready to go and understand it's going to be better there than it is here. Live every day like it might be our last. And then notice this, Paul's demand. We find that in verses 27 through 30. He says in 27, Oh, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul reveals three essentials for believers there that he's telling these Philippians. Here's three essential things. In verse 27, he's saying there should be a consistency in the Christian life. He says his conversation there, when he talks about that, he's not talking about their talk, he's talking about their walk. Let your manner of living, if you will, be as it becometh the gospel. And the demand is that be- believers would act like believers. The verb Paul uh, uses is related to our word politics. What he's saying is uh, behave like citizens are supposed to behave. I'm going to say that again. He says, hey, let your conversation as it becometh the gospel. Uh your lifestyle ought, ought, to, ought to reflect uh, your citizenship. You say, well, I'm a citizen of America. No, I'm talking about your spiritual citizenship. See, when you got saved, you were made a citizen of heaven. So now you have dual citizenship. You're a citizen there, and you're a citizen here. But we ought to live like our citizenship in heaven. When Paul wrote this, in the time when Paul's writing now, People understood exactly what he's saying. See, he's writing to Philippi. Philippi is a colony of Rome. What that means is Philippi is a city that's not in Rome, but all the citizens of Philippi are citizens of Rome. And he's using that analogy, listen, heaven's our home, and while we live here, our citizenship is here. And and we ought to live like that. Can people around you tell that you're a Christian? Can they see that you're living in a different way that the citizens of this world live? There ought to be a difference. The Church of Jesus Christ is a colony here on this earth. Philippi was a colony of Rome. And we ought to have this, this spirit of the song that says, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Hmm? Not going to be here permanently. And we have a tabernacle. This is just a temporary place of dwelling. And then Paul reveals a believer's life must becometh the gospel of Christ. Becometh means to, to be appropriate. Uh, live a life that's worthy of your citizenship in heaven. Believers must live lives that are appropriate for those who claim to be in Christ. We ought to live lives that are befitting of the testimony that we give that we're saved. Hmm? You know, this is a real weak spot in Christianity today. Christians don't want to live like citizens of heaven. They want to live like citizens of earth. They want to be in love with the world and yet go to heaven when they die. Well, you can be saved and be in love with the world, I guess, uh, and and go to heaven when you die, but you're going to give an account. There is an account to be given, and we need to understand that. Well, then Paul says there should be cooperation, he says, in the latter part of verse 27, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says there ought to be cooperation among Christians. Listen, if we all have the same Holy Spirit, we we should have all the same desires. Spiritually speaking, and there ought to be a unity about us in the Holy Spirit, striving together. Um, that has to do with an athletic type of, of event. Uh, and I think Paul's trying to give the picture there as a church is now a team. And he reminds them of the necessity of teamwork if we're going to have success. It's often said there's no I in team. We ought to see that in our, in our, in our Christianity. Listen, we're supposed to be a team working for the same goals, working for the same things, the things of God. And we need everybody to come together with the same kind of spirit and desire. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You see, we have an enemy, Satan, who wants to cause division in the church. Strife and division rob the church of its power. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Listen, if we're busy fighting amongst ourselves, we're not going to be doing what we're supposed to be doing out there. Hmm? And when there's division and strife in the church, the church loses the power. Hmm? It short-circuits God's power in the church house when there's division and strife. And so we need to have a unity like he tells them. We need to strive together. Warren Wiersbe said this, The enemy is always happy to see internal divisions in a local ministry. Divide and conquer is his motto. And too often he has his way. It's only as believers stand together that that they can overcome the wicked one. And so Paul demands consistency. Don't be a hypocritical type Christian. Cooperation. Get with the program. Be unified in what the church is trying to do in reaching people for Christ. And then the third thing he says about their having confidence, verses 28 through 30. I like what he says there and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. And then he says this, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Well, he wants Christians to understand we need to expect battles in our life We're not to be terrified, he says. And that word terrified is interesting. It means extreme fear, not just fear, but extreme fear. He says you don't need to be terrified anymore, Uh, uh, terrified by our enemies. And uh, I, I checked that out. And that terrified there has the idea of a horse that's running away from the battle. We're not to be terrified. We're to be confident. Why can we be confident? Because the battles we face just prove our salvation. Hello? I hate the battles we have to face in this life, but they are a blessing in one way. They show that I've been saved and I'm fighting these battles because I'm a Christian. That reinforces in me the fact that I know I'm saved. How do I know? Well, there are several ways, but one way is the devil's battling me tooth and nail. Hmm? And Paul says, expect this kind of thing. The world's battling me tooth and nail. The world don't agree with me, and I don't agree with them. Amen? These battles are a privilege. Look at verse 29. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Listen, we are privileged in that we have the opportunity to suffer for his sake. Hmm? You know, World War II, uh, I I don't know how many uh, young men died. Well, how many men died for America in World War II? But they were willing to do that. They suffered and they paid a price. For something they believed in. We need to be willing and pay a price for something we believe in, and that's salvation by grace through faith. Listen, a believer's life must a believer must fight these battles in their life. You know, Satan wants us to think that we're the only ones in the battle. But listen, every Christian every day is fighting the same battle we face. Hmm? I mentioned about men's retreat. You know, it's a wonderful thing to get in that room with all these men from different places and different occupations and different lives and, all, and, and, to, and to hear them sing and to see them pray and, and to testify of knowing Christ as their Savior. It's an encouraging thing. But knowing this, that every one of them has their battles. And we're going to have our battles. Paul says, hey, just endure and understand you're having those battles because of your faith and fight the battles, and come out on the victory side. That's what we need to do. I want you to bow your heads for just a minute. Here's a question of, of today. Are you, as a Christian, living in such a way as to influence others for Christ? You have a circle of influence that, that Nobody else is going to have. There are certain people whose lives you touch that no other Christian may ever touch. Are you being the influence to them that you need to be? Will you take the advice of the Apostle Paul this morning? Will you, will you make your life count for Christ? Will you, will you dedicate your life to him? Would you quit living for this world? Would you see your trials and tribulations as proof and evidence and your privilege of being able to suffer for Christ? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to talk to believers for just a minute. I'm talking about folks who know for sure they're going to heaven when they die because they've trusted Christ as their Savior. Are you living this good advice for godly living that Paul gave? How many of you can honestly say, Preacher, I I believe my life pretty much lines up with what you were preaching this morning. Here's my hand. Would you Hold it up high. Pretty much lines up. Put it down. I wonder how many believers would say, Preacher, there's some things that need to change in my life. As you were preaching, the Holy Spirit of God spoke to my heart about something in my life that needs to change. And I'm making the decision today. I want it to change, and I'm asking God to help me. If that's you, would you put your hand up right now? God spoke to me, preacher. Hands are going up all over this room. God spoke to me, preacher, about something that needs to change in my life. And I'm, I'm asking him right now to help me to change. You can put it down. Anyone else? God spoke to me, preacher. One final question. Are you saved? You may say I don't even know what that is. That means has there been a time in your life where you opened your heart to Jesus Christ and received him as your savior that you received Jesus as your only way of salvation. You quit trusting your church membership, you quit trusting your good works, you quit trusting your good being a, being a good person, religious activity or whatever you've been trusting your baptism and you realized You need Jesus Christ. Has there been a time when you've opened your heart to him? If you've done that, would you hold your hand up high? I remember when I I got saved, preacher. Hold your hand up high. I want to see it. I remember when I got saved, preacher. I, I know when I die, I'm going to heaven. Here's my hand as a testimony. All right, you can put it down. Listen, not everybody in the room could raise their hand. Maybe it was you that couldn't. And the question today is, would you today... Open your heart to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Savior. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him, and he with me. The picture there is Jesus is at the door to your heart knocking. He wants to come into your heart and your life. He wants to save you, but he will not force himself on you. He says, if you will invite me, if you open the door to your heart and life, I will come into you and fellowship with you. I wonder, there are some folks in this room today say, preacher, that's what I need. I need to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want somebody to take the Bible and show me how to be saved today. Here's my hand. Would you slip it up high? I won't call your name. I won't embarrass you in any way. I will pray for you. If that's your need today and God spoke to you and you want somebody to take the Bible, show you how to be saved, would you just slip your hand up right now? Let's stand together, song number 489.